Hey, welcome to our newest episode of Southern Voices. I'm Ashley Haugen. I'm really excited about this episode because I get to continue a conversation that I started with Chiquita Patterson. She was a recent face of Nashville. But I'm also talking with Lisa Green, who is someone I grew up with. I've known her since we were seven years old. The three of us enjoyed a candid conversation about race. Both of these women are African-American and I'm white. They have both opened my eyes in new and unexpected ways to racial injustice and disparity, and both were gracious with their openness on the topic. I hope this episode is insightful and that it urges all of us to get outside of our comfort zone for the greater good. Here we go. Uh, Welcome to this episode of Southern Voices Podcast. Um, I'm super excited about today's podcast episode. I've been eagerly anticipating um, today. I'm excited to welcome two friends um, to have an open discussion. Um, I've got Chiquita Patterson here. She is the founder of United Street Tours, which is a Black history walking tour based in Nashville, Um, She was actually recently featured as a Faces of Nashville for Style Blueprint, which is how I met her. Um, And we've also got Lisa Green, who is, um, I guess, a lifetime friend of mine. We've been friends since first grade. Um, She's now a speech-language pathologist for the D.C. public school system. Um, So thank you both for being here. I'm really excited um, to have a chance to chat with you gals. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Very nice being here. Yeah. Um, okay, so Chiquita, you grew up in Memphis, and Lisa, you grew up in Nashville. Tell me, um, today, the topic we're mainly talking about today is I want to I talk about um, the reality of what race means. I think um, I'm a white woman, and um, I think that there's a lot of conversation that can be had, and I'm excited to have this open discussion with you guys to try to shed light on the topic of race, the current state of race, um, and kind of just have these conversations about things that um, people may not be aware of. So, but starting with your your upbringing, what was it like growing up as a Black American in the South? We'll start with you, Chiquita. Okay, awesome. So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, grew up in a predominantly African American neighborhood in Orange Mound, and raised by my mother. I have two sisters. And my grandparents had played a very, very huge role in my upbringing. And they oftentimes shared stories with me of struggles that they've had with uh, white people. My grandmother, she worked, um, I don't even remember her working. I remember her as just staying at home with us and taking care of us. But she did tell us about times when she worked, when white people on the job weren't kind to her because she was African-American and stories like that. And before I went off to college, my grandfather had a talk with me and he just let me know that, hey, America is a melting pot, but black people are oftentimes not included in that melting pot. Um, so those words pretty much stuck with me and gave me the exterior that I needed to keep pushing forward even though experiences came my way as an African-American woman uh, that didn't seem fair, things like that. Mm-hmm. Lisa, what about you? So um, I grew up in Nashville, but I was born in Portsmouth, Virginia, which is a naval town, military town. So my parents had very different upbringings. My mom is from a little town in Brighton, Tennessee, um, West Tennessee, and my dad, um, you know, born and raised in um, Portsmouth, Virginia. So 
and I was unique even among my peers because Ashley, we went to a very exclusive private Christian school. I think we were both members of the 12-year club, right? Yes, we were. So we, uh, <laughs> we so survived. I went there first grade, yes, first grade through 12th grade. Um, I felt very dichotomous um, growing up. There was always two worlds. There was my school world and everything that surrounded that, and then there was my home world. So I had a lot of interactions with white people through school because we were very active in band and theater and things like that. Um, but then I would go home and I'd become Black Lisa. That was church. Um, my neighborhood was a pretty middle class, maybe lower middle class neighborhood. Most of my school friends lived in very affluent neighborhoods. Um, so it's, it was really growing up, there's a, a concept of psychology of, you know, um, wearing the mask. And so it, I was very much aware, um, I think that's a poem. Anyway, um, there was very much this idea of wearing the mask. And I do remember from a very, very, very early age understanding that I had to play two different characters in order to kind of survive and make it. Um, And a lot of times those characters were at odds because I, too, had grandparents and parents who grew up in the South. And my stories are a lot more violent. I grew up on a lot more violent stories. Um, there were a lot. Did you um, say violent? Yes. Okay. For example. My parents and grandparents' interactions with white people were very, they're, they're the, things that, the, the things that you hear about when you think about clan violence and night riders in Mississippi. Those are the types of interactions that my family had with white people in the South. When, so when you were growing up, or when they were growing up? When they were growing up. So okay. I grew up on those stories. I grew up, okay. I had a great, great grandfather who was maimed and beaten with an end of his life by the Night Riders. Oh, my God. My great-grandmother's house was burned down by the Klan. So my, my experience, like I said, it was very dichotomous because then my parents sent me to the widest school. In America. It's true. <laughs> I, I, she, you were uh, you were not my first black friend, but you were my only black. Fr- you were the only. Let me back up. Is it PC to say black or African American? I'm okay with either. Either mm-hmm. Lisa, either. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I'm 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 of the I'm of the black ilk, but I find that it tends to be when you grew up, whether you are African American or black. So you were the only African American or black, uh, black student black. at the school, and you were the first one to graduate from our school. I, I was. I was the first black person to graduate from our, our school. Yeah. And what about... I hold that dubious honor. I don't know. If that, is that a good thing? I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. I don't know. <laughs> um, at the time, it was a source of pride in my family and in my immediate community. I look back, because um, I graduated, I'm telling my age here, but I graduated in 93. How am I the first person, black person, to graduate from any institution in 1993? What about you, Chiquita? Where'd you, what was your school life like? <clears throat> so I can um, I can identify what you said when you said uh, sometimes you had to have two faces. And that reminds me of the whole, you know, code switching topic. I can say that public school all the way K-12, 
I feel like, in a sense, I was protected by the African-American community because I didn't experience not being able to be 100% myself because I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American. My church was African-American. My school, my grocery store, like everything, was. I was surrounded in the culture of people who looked like me. My first experience interacting on a uh, friendly or one-on-one basis with white people was my senior year when I went off to a camp in Memphis that they host at a college. I think that year it was at the University of Memphis. And this program basically took students from all over Memphis. They picked about, I would say, five of the top students from every school or a lot of the schools in Memphis. So students came from very different social economic backgrounds, racial makeup and things like that. So, and they broke us up into small groups of cohorts and we remained with that same group throughout um, the camp. And I was in the group with white people. I was in the group with Chinese people and I was in a group with African-Americans. And it was just, to me, the first, my first introduction to the diversity that I read about. Right. So I still didn't get that sense of code switching. I was still 100 percent myself. What is code switching? Code switching is basically when you have to change who you are, your personality or the way you speak. That's to make Lisa's. other people comfortable. So she right. means what she thinks code switching. Okay. Right. Okay. So as in that camp, I didn't really do a lot of code switching, but I could notice people looking at me like, oh my gosh, she's so loud, or why is she dancing so much and things like that. So it's like people probably thought I was weird and I thought they were weird because they were not loud and they were whispering and things like that. So I think that was my that probably was my first introduction to white people on a friendly basis. Uh, it was a pretty good experience for me because we did several different activities where we had an opportunity to build trust. And I think if you're not introduced, and that was, a, like I said, the first time I had been friendly with white people, and I'm sure that was the first time a lot of them had been friendly with me. Um, so it, it it gave us a sense of trust and helped us break down the barriers and the stereotypes that we had about each other. So trust, you think, obviously, is a key, one key component to to kind of forging racial relationships. I mean, I remember when I was interviewing you, you said that the key to, when I asked you what's the key to ending racial disparity, it was about having conversations and closing Mm -hmm. the the information gap. So that sounds like similar. Right. So when when you do have those conversations, it helps you it helps you build trust, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes if 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 you've never had a conversation with an African-American, um, what you have to go by is what you hear. And oftentimes what you hear about African-American women is what you see portrayed on TV, in the media, um, reality TV. Sometimes that can be very, very harsh, um, the image of black women. So... If you if that's all you see and that's all you grow with, you you learn not to trust that you can be friends with someone who maybe acts in ways that you don't act. Mm-hmm. Right. But when you can have those one on one personal conversation, it helps to break down those barriers and build trust. Lisa, what was there? Were there any moments when we were growing up in school that um, you recall as feeling extremely um, discriminated against or, you know, not ostracized. I don't think that's the right word, but was there, were there, were there experiences of discrimination as you were growing up um, at the all-white school? So 
and, I, and actually, you, never, you and I have had conversations about I always felt other. I think mm-hmm. that's the, probably the most accurate word I can use. Other? The discrimination, yeah, other. Yeah. I, I always felt yeah. other. Yeah. Um, kind of how I would assume, you know, an alien in a foreign land would feel. And so when we talk, it, and, and we've talked before, it's interesting because hindsight is twenty twenty. In the moment growing up, I had pretty fond memories of my time there and when we went to school and people. Looking back, I realized that some things were incredibly racist, were incredibly discriminatory, were incredibly purposeful in reinforcing white supremacy. Um, even, so I would go to, I remember, I'll never forget a particular history teacher, thought he was the coolest guy ever, found out from another friend when I would leave class, he would make fried chicken and watermelon dough. Um, he would um, oh. have very disparaging words about black people, black politicians. Um, he felt safe. He felt safe to do that. And so I always, you know, I'm an educator first and foremost, and um, I, I, I believe that conversations are important. I think racism begins, the, well, the dismantling of it begins with education. Um, the more you understand the, a, a thing, the, the better you have an opportunity to grasp it, to incorporate it into your daily life. Which that actually kind of speaks to what um, Chiquita does. So United Street Tours gives um, their walking tours of black history in Nashville. And when we first spoke, she was she she goes, what you said something about how, you know, what you learn in the textbooks at school is, you know, um, the Civil War. And then, you know, you've got the mm-hmm. Civil Rights Movement and then Martin Luther King pops up and then oh, we're all friends. And <laughs> it's like, but the, the in-between stories that are untold are really the crux of um, you know, those are the things that need to come to the top and be discussed. And so let's talk about terminology um, and what you think non-Black people should know. For example, like I said, is it, is it preferred to say Black or African-American or nothing at all? I mean, what, what, is, what are some things that you hear that just make your skin crawl or you're like, I wish they understood what they were really saying? Well, first off, I do want to say, Ashley, Black people are not a monolith. And while Chiquita and I probably have similar experiences and dissimilar experiences, I, I know from, I won't speak for her, but for me personally, I cannot speak on behalf of all Black people. Absolutely. Yeah. But what I yep. can say as, as being as an active <laughs> member of that community, um, you know, it, 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 it starts with being able to sit down and talk and, and, and listen to more than one source. So typically your younger people were cool with black. I know a lot of my older aunts and uncles, they want to be called African-American. Never, ever, ever say my black or the black or your colors. <laughs> yeah. we, we don't use those. I mean, again, um, sometimes it astonishes me how uncommon terminology is, um, it never would occur to me that someone would still call someone colored. Um, I got, I went home Christmas and was called colored gal, 
this was Christmas of 2018. <laughs> you know, um, so, yeah. Do you notice, is there a, a difference, because you're obviously up north um, versus the south, is is there a tangible difference for you in terms of um, anything, like, would you have ever heard that phrase up there? Well, I look, so, no. Um, I, I, and I think most northern black people don't realize the type of bubble that we live in. Really? Um, racism still happens. I live, you know, I, I live up north. I live in Maryland, work in D.C., um, you go far, you, and I have this theory, you go 50 miles outside in any direction, outside of any major metropolitan area, and you've gone 50 years in the past. I, that theory has yet to be disproven for me. That's interesting. I believe it, though. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What about you? Any for me, as she said, as Lisa said, like, I don't represent all African Americans, mm-hmm. and certainly um, my opinions are my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but I despise being called the black or hearing the blacks for me um it positions it in a way that black people are objects and not people um i took a civil war walking tour and the guy just kept saying the blacks did this and the blacks did that and the way he said it it just made my skin crawl and i said excuse me could you please say black people and he goes I don't see why you will be offended by something like that now this is a white guy so I said well it is it's very offensive and he said would you prefer to be called a negro <gasps> absolutely he said that and I said you know what it's it's time for me to leave your walking tour sir <laughs> absolutely I, mm-hmm. and you know actually I'm a linguist at heart right so yes. I believe that everything starts in language Yes. So when you start using language that dehumanizes me, the black, the chair, the window, you're object- I become an object. And it is so much easier to disregard the humanity of an object. Absolutely. I don't have to consider the humanity of a chair because it's an object. I don't, I don't have to think about how it feels when I sit on it or when I lay on it or leave it in the sun. So I, I, wanted, I, I do like this idea of discussing terminology because... It, 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 in my opinion, it very much drives how you think of, think about a thing. So what are the, um, talk to, Lisa, you're very um, vocal on Facebook about, <laughs> uh, which I can't tell you how much I love. because You're very vocal on Facebook about um, topics uh, pertaining to discrimination or racism and things like that. And um, I think you, I think you say stay woke dog about 20 times a week. Um, <laughs> that has become my tagline. That is yeah, your tagline. That is um, tagline. And I love it because, and, and I love it because I feel like I'm getting educated. These are things that I may not have ever been privy to. And, and I'll, I'll say, okay, I need you to explain what this is about or, you know, tell me more. Um, what are these topics that, that people typically, white people, non-black people may not be aware of? Like, what are the things that to this day impact you all in a negative way? And I I know you're not speaking on behalf of all of all African-Americans, but just the the topics that people need to be privy to or the the incidents or the things, these these things that you find and you post on Facebook. Um, Right now, a lot of my 
thought process is occupied by systems and structure. Um, growing up, my your education is shaped by what they want you to know. I know that sounds very conspiracy theory, but think about it. If you go to Bible study, it's what we want you to know about Christianity and the Bible, right? Um, that is why slavery in, uh, there was a, I think it was a Mifflin textbook in Texas that was released last year, um, reduced slavery to indentured servanthood. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> um, I hate yeah. that. Uh, and, and this wasn't this wasn't ten years ago, twenty years ago. This was last year. Um, mm-hmm. We called them out about it. They they agreed to change the language. Um, but I don't know if you know this is all education. But if a textbook hits in Texas, it goes across the United States. Texas is one of the biggest education markets. So if Texas adopts it, then then other states follow suit. So imagine that being disseminated. Um, I'm I'm very much interested in having non people of color or really even just non-black people, understand more about how the systems are set up. Uh, we talk about the criminal justice system, the education system. Um, even our foreign policy is, is set in a system of white supremacy and colonization. So, so explain that, because that's, okay. you know, break it down. So, again, I'm not the final authority on all of these things. I'm, I'm learning uh, myself. Um, but so let's take the criminal justice system, right? Um, you now have, what, black people, African-Americans make up almost, what, like 14% of the population, but we're, like, over 60% of those incarcerated. Um, a huge percentage of that is for, like, nonviolent offenses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then you talk about the destabilization of the black family because most of those are male. Um then you layer that with the substandard system of education in inner cities or, or where black people reside, right? So then you have destabilization of the family, inferior access to education. So, again, you, you have to look at all of these root systems mm-hmm. and, you know, where there's smoke and fire, it, all of this is intentional, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the intentionality of it is what has to be dismantled and broken down. You, you do a thing because it's always been done that way and it's worked out fine for you and yours. Um, and, and actually, we've had this conversation, and I, and I say this on Facebook all the time. I don't believe that racism is something that can be fixed by black people. Um, Toni Morrison, I encourage your listeners to go and look up some interviews of hers, and um, I can even give you some links actually after the show, but... Um, he does a wonderful job of, under, of, of describing racism, its deleterious effects on the mental status of people, and how it really is a problem that has to be fixed by white people because you all have the power and the construct to change it. Black people don't have access to that power system. That's why I say all the time, black people cannot be racist. We can be prejudiced. Um, we can be, you know... Um, discriminatory, but we can't be racist because we don't hold any of those power structures that impact your daily life. And so listen that, and that makes sense to me listening to that. If the power is in the hands of the, or the control of, of white people, what's the, which kind of leads into my next question. What's the, what's the, what do we need to do? Well, uh, and and I'm going to let Shakita answer this as well. I honestly believe 
it begins in education. A lot of people don't know that there's a problem. Um, and so if you don't know there's a problem, there's no reason to fix it. And I would agree that um, I, I don't, I think there are a lot of people who don't realize that there's a problem. For instance, when you, you told me a story recently about that happened to you growing up that I, I mean, I was just kind of blown away because it was only, I mean, it's, it feels like recent history. And yet that was, you know, what it just, I think a lot of people think that there's not a problem. I think you're right on that. So, and or they think it's someone else. Yeah, but then, but then you also have those people that benefit greatly from the problem. Mm-hmm. And don't, for example, I mean, you know, what does that mean? No, I'm just saying I, I'm agreeing with the with the entire education piece, which of course you know is why the tours is in effect and why I started the tours. Um, one of the main things that people don't realize is that is that if something does not affect you, you do not think about it on a day-to-day basis, right? We live in a world that was built for right-handed people. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Imagine how left-handed people maneuver through the world. That's something that we don't walk through our day thinking about, hmm, I wonder how a left-handed person would feel about this being on this side. And it's the same thing with uh, issues with black people and white people. White people just don't think about the issues that we go through on a day-to-day basis. And when you could just really just educate yourself through different means, taking a walking tour is one of the things that's engaging and that can provide some of the education for you, but also just stepping out of your comfort zone, going to African-American churches and seeing how Black people worship, right? Going to an African-American grocery store, right? For the first time, my fiance and I went to a grocery store and it had... um food products that we couldn't even tell you the name of it to this day, but we needed to experience that to experience how people feel when they come to this country and go to our grocery stores and don't understand like what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it's like putting, taking yourself out of your comfort zone and putting yourself in situations that make you uncomfortable. So you can develop that empathy for others. So in terms of, so if people are feeling intimidated about, going to a, a African-American church or going to an, Af- like if they feel intimidated, what, how do you nudge somebody out of their comfort zone or what's, what's your advice for getting people out of their comfort I, zone? I feel intimidated every day I walk out of my house. Hallelujah. There you go. Um, right. there, I have, I, I have to interact with white faces, white people every day. Um, while I do believe in education, I, all, I also understand that sometimes education is hard. White people are not going to be handheld by every black person they meet. Um, and that sounds real cool and, and not very rainbows and, and sunshine, but the way that I have to walk through this world, not only as a black person, but a black woman, I mean, Ashley, I told you, it was a month ago, I had my hair in Bantu knots, and you can Google what a Bantu knot is. I had hair jewelry placed at its face. I went to a homeschool co-op um, in a white section of D.C., and the director of the program reached up, grabbed my hair, and wiggled it, and proceeded to ask me where she could find this particular hair jewelry. 
wasn't 10 years ago. This wasn't 20 years ago. This was a month ago. Um, and what did that, well, how did that feel? What, it imagine, I imagine it feels the same way a, a goat feels a petting zoo. Um, it, it dehumanizes you. You invaded my personal space. You treated me as an object. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it speaks back to black people not having agency over their bodies for the entirety of slavery through the, you know, Reconstruction period, Jim Crow. It's, it's, imagine if someone came up to you and, and you had a nose ring and they went and they started fingering your nose jewelry because they thought it was cool. That would be almost inconceivable to you. Those are the types of indignities that black people endure every day. Even, even now in 2019, we don't have agency over our faces, over our bodies. And you it's know- detrimental. You know, Lisa, that also speaks a lot about privilege, right? So you feel like you have the right to walk up to me, invade my personal space, and touch me without my permission. That's not okay. When I first started working at a school system in a school here in Nashville, we were at a training, and uh, a white woman actually reached out and touched my hair. And I, of course, moved backwards, and I looked at her. Probably was the most disgusting look she had ever seen because she looked at me in shock, like, what did I do? And I'm like, you don't touch my hair. And after that, that incident got around to the few black people that worked in the school, and everybody came and was like, hey, are you okay? I'm surprised. Like, we didn't that hear more exactly about this. That's exactly what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that, a that's a big no-no. Afterwards on Facebook, because I actually did a video on Facebook about it and everything, and and you know what was the most awesome thing to me? What? Even my white friends knew that that was not okay. And they checked on me and they, argued, and, and they called me and they texted me. Um, Ashley, you, you, you know, Facebook messaged me afterwards and like, you know, are you okay? And I felt like, oh my gosh, my work is working. <laughs> <laughs> You've they, made a tremendous impact. I think the fact that you're... Um, you, that is what you're doing when you post your stuff on Facebook. You are educating people. And, and, you know, that goes back to what you are both saying about education being the heart of, of change. Um, so I, you've totally, edu- both of you have totally educated me and opened my eyes, um, to things that I would have otherwise not be aware of. And I think that's, that is, you know, that's what needs to happen across the board, I think. Um, do you want to share that story that it triggered or no? Yeah, I, I can do that. I can do that. Um, so I, in my Facebook video, I also spoke about why, um, I, and I, will, I remain professional throughout the whole incident. Um, I did give her the craziest look I could muster. She still <laughs> didn't have any idea of what she had done. Um, but luckily, my psychologist was with me at the time. Uh, not my personal psychologist, but my school. I thought we worked in tandem. Um, who were assessing the same kiddo that day. And so she pulled me over to the side and was able to create some distancing space. Um, she's also a non-person, of, uh, a, she's also a person of color. Um, so she kind of understood what then after what happened. But um, I got in the car afterwards. I cried, rage cried, probably for about a good 20 minutes. And then I made a video and I explained to them, when I was at my private, uh, predominantly white school, was maybe fourth grade, the classroom teacher at that time, um, I thought she was a really nice lady, really, you know, 
great, had great memories of fourth grade. Um, my mom had done my hair in cornrows, and she had gotten the pink sponge rollers, and so the end of the cornrows were curly. And I just, I just knew I was the most adorable person in the world. I was cute, <laughs> and you were. Um, I was, I was amazingly beautiful with my hair that way. I just I felt legal, on top of the world. So I get to class, um, feeling good that day. Everything's going fine. I don't even remember what precipitated it, but what it, the teacher had a fascination with my cornrows. So what she did was she came to my desk and pulled each grade out of my head so that the entire class could count them together. And I don't remember what happened before, what happened afterwards. I remember sitting there in the entire class, one, two, three, 14. I had 17 braids in my hair that day. That was easily 30 years ago. I will never forget, I had, oh, 17. I had 17 braids in my hair that day. Um, I can still hear my classmates' voices in my ear. Um, that, that, you know, that one, two. I asked my mother to take my hair down that day. Of course, she refused, like any good black mother would. Um, <laughs> I, refused. <laughs> I refused to have my hair ever done that way again. Um, and it was probably well into my 30s before I even, I'm, I'm what's called natural now. So my hair is in the state that it grows naturally out of my head. So there's no chemical process or straightening process to it, which you would probably remember that more after going up. My hair was straightened um, through a chemical process yeah. um, and through a heat process um, when I was growing up. But it, it was well into my 30s before I could even say, hey, it's okay that my I can wear my hair the way it naturally grows out of my head. Um, I don't think the teacher meant anything by it. it I, and that's the thing. I don't think there was any real malicious intent behind what she did. I, there was no malice in her. I mean, you remember her. Actually, there, was, there was no malice in her heart in that. Right. But that goes to the whole it point of this entire negate. conversation is I don't the lack of awareness. And, mm-hmm. and you don't know what you don't know. So that's why we need to talk about things that we don't know. We need to educate. But I also want to iterate, reiterate that lack of awareness does not translate into lack of harm. True. Just because you're not aware does not, I mean, does she realize that 30 some odd years later, no. the grown woman that I am, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's, what, that's one of the ways that I don't want white people to let themselves off the hook. Yep. Mm-hmm. Lack of awareness does not mean lack of harm. And and we live in the age of Google. Um, if you don't have a, a black friend you can dial up, um, you absolutely have to get on your computer. All of these things and concepts that we talked about today are readily available online to educate yourself from from mere, many aspects, not just black people aspects or or white people aspects. There's there's economic impact aspects. There's societal. You know, you can really get educated about these things, um, even if you don't have the, you know, ask the friend lifeline. So uh, we're going to wrap this up. Um, I want to hear from both of you, you know, if you could offer either a, a piece of advice or a suggestion to what you think um, non-black people need to know or always remember, what would that be? Chiquita? 
Well, first, Lisa, I just want to say I'm so sorry you had to experience that because I know how things like that can stick with you for a very long time. Um, so I'm sorry you had that experience. And I hope by you sharing your story, it makes white people aware of whether you are consciously or unconsciously doing things like that. It does have a lasting impact, period. Um, yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. So when I was in grad school, it's okay if I take Absolutely. this Absolutely. All right. So when I was in grad school, um, I, in a social work program, you have to do an internship. And I worked at an internship, and one of the other interns that worked with me was white. And our internship leader or the person who was over us, who gave us work, she would basically give me the assignments every day of shredding papers or fouling and things like that. And then the white intern, she would take to uh, go out to people's homes and she would go to court with her and things like that. So I asked her one day, I was like, why am I always in the office shredding papers and and doing tasks like fouling, but the other intern gets to go out and do home visits and she gets to go out and go to court and learn in the field work. That could put me at a severe disadvantage when I graduate if I don't have this experience. So I told uh, I told her, say, I, I will be talking to the school about this because I need, you know, more field experience. That's the point of an internship, and I'm not getting that. So on my drive back to the school to talk to the administrators about it, pretty much she emailed them and said that I had been a horrible intern that um, just like spoke very horribly on my name. Basically, I showed up late. Um, I was disrespectful and they no longer want me to come in the bit in the building. In fact, I was to give my key fob to the administrators. And if I left any outside work or anything there, the administrators could come and get it. But I was no longer welcome on that campus. And I said, wow. <laughs> how? Oh, and the, and the, 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 the main thing that she said was that they were failing me for the semester. I think they were either giving me a C or a D. I can't remember. A C and a D to me is the same thing in grad school because if you get too many C's, you get kicked out. If you get a D, you get kicked out. So it's the same thing. So I, I asked my administrator, I said, how is this so? I said, you guys have my grades. You have my progress reports. We have to do weekly checks with you. You've even been to this place and she sung me praises. So how all of a sudden is it that I got a C or a D and here's all the work she's graded so far and it's nothing but A's and B's. How does that equal this? And so they said, well, we don't know, but this is very serious. Serious. We're going to have to take it before the committee. And I, and they actually gave me a C for that class. And I said, no, this is not correct math. How does this equal a C? So it went before a committee. Actually, I had to challenge it. I took it before the committee. And I'm sitting at a table of white people and one African-American woman, professor. And they all looked at me and said, why were you disrespectful to her? Why did you do that? Why? Tell me about this. And I said, I was not disrespectful to her. Um, here are all my progress reports. And, I, you know, you have to plead your case. You're not allowed representation or anything like that. And I just said, look at this system. 
right? Look at, look at what I'm going through right now. So at one point, one of the professors said, Chiquita, what you have to realize is that everyone has a slave owner. And the black professor spoke up. She said, Chiquita, do not say anything. Do not answer that. Unbelievable. And I walked out of there in tears, crying. I called my mom and said, I cannot believe this just happened. So from there, we had several other meetings, and they still said, hey, we can't change your grade. She gave you a C. That's what you earn. I went to the dean of students' office. I talked to the associate dean of students and the dean of students. And I said, "Every I, I said, I need this grade changed because this could get me kicked out of grad school. Not having an internship mid-year can get me kicked out of grad school. So this is not just the old oh, Chiquita had an attitude one day, even though I didn't. This was a very serious thing. Like, I've invested a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, a lot of resources to go to grad school, right? Right. So the uh, associate dean of students, whom I love, we're still Facebook friends to this day. I still consider her a great mentor of mine. And she said, you know, I'm going to go to every single meeting with you. And this was a white lady. And she went to every meeting with me. And the tone of those meetings changed. It was less about, Chiquita, you did this. And more about, tell us your perspective. What happened? Right. Um, but at the end of the day, what happened, I got the grade change because... We yes, know math. Uh, yes, did. A's and B's does not equal a C. Yes, right. <laughs> so the grade was changed. And then they said, okay, good job. You got your grade changed. However, because you're not in an internship this year with the rest of your students, you're going to have to sit this year out. So your program will be a three-year program instead of a two. Oh, my God. I was so upset. I called every social work agency in that area and said, can anybody be my, uh, can anyone take me in as an intern? And I found someone. There you go. And I, so they said, okay, well, you have to go through this process and take it back before the committee. Mind you, I'm doing all of but this as a grad. it shouldn't have been like that. Right. It shouldn't have happened. Mind you, I'm doing happened. all of this as a grad student on top of my studies, on mm -hmm. top of everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, but I ended up writing, uh, you have to write an essay to get permission to have an outside intern. Right. So I did that. And it, of course, it was approved because how can you deny that? Right. And <laughs> it's like from the rest of the time there, I went through that experience with a chip on my shoulder. No one should have to go through college thinking I'm in a white world and people don't want me here. But that's what I went through the rest of my experience. And that's what that felt thinking. like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many times I just wanted to say, forget it. I'm going home. I give up. Mm -hmm. But I was like, no, <laughs> I cannot succumb to a system that doesn't want me here, that doesn't want to support me. I have to fight through it. Like, people before me have fought through situations like this. And I did. I graduated. And, you know, that graduating from that school meant a whole lot more to me than just a degree. I bet it did. Absolutely. So, for me, um, just to be brief, I, I want to make sure that everyone starts looking at systems. I mean, if you look at what's happened to Zita, that's a system. Mm -hmm. Imagine having, you talk, you talk about, uh, there are white people who believe that white privilege doesn't exist. But think about it. She would have had to sit out a year, plus the financial cost of an additional year of school. Mm -hmm. it all, it, 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 it's already put her at a disadvantage. So then you have another white social worker, well, I worked just as hard. Why couldn't Chiquita do it? But look at all the other things she had to overcome just to get where you are. Right. So for me, the biggest takeaway I think I want your listeners to hear is, one, start thinking about systems, how things are structured in and around your world, and is that an inclusive system? Is, is that a system that would lend itself 
to a black person or a non-person of color being included in your world. And then secondly, and this is a challenge, you know, I, I give it to all of you guys, my old school crew, <laughs> look around you. If there are no people of color or black people that you can call friends, like real friends, you may want to think about why that is. And, and what have you set up in and around your world where there are no black people? They're everywhere. And if you live in a world where there are no black people, I want you to start thinking about why that is. Noted. And for me, it would be... Uh, The same thing I was saying in the beginning, put yourself in situations that make you 100% uncomfortable. If you can do that, you can start doing the work. It's very difficult to say, oh, I read this book or I did this and I'm woke now. But if you've never taken yourself out of your comfort zone, out of your white world, and put yourself in a situation where you're surrounded by people of color and minorities, and you get a chance to talk to them and see how they experience the world, I mean, you would never know 100%, but just being able to to gain perspective and put yourself in someone else's shoes will open your eyes in a whole new way. So if I could leave your listeners with anything, it's just that. Take yourself out of your comfort zone. Put yourself in situations that make you uncomfortable. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. You really, um, I appreciate your candor. I'm really sorry for the experiences that you both shared, that you endured. Um, I appreciate your honesty, and I am hopeful that this will make even a tiny impact. Um, Then we've done something good. Southern Voices is a production of Style Blueprint. It's hosted by me, Ashley Haugen, and it's produced and engineered by Jared Anderson of Evergreen Productions. Hear more episodes of Southern Voices on our website, styleblueprint.com forward slash southern dash voices. That's styleblueprint.com forward slash southern dash voices. Till next time.